32% of healthy postmenopausal women below 12, 82% in people in care homes below 12. I mean, like, you know, and then Japan, they noted, which is doing very well, they actually are doing great in vitamin D. Welcome to the Fat Emperor Podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. Three, two, one, we're live. Ivor Cummins, thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. It's good to have you back. Great to see you, Paul. <laughs> you know, for everyone that, that may not, this may be the first time they're hearing or seeing you on the podcast, just so they all know, we did an amazing podcast, primarily because you are an amazing individual uh, on my show a couple of uh, months ago, which, in which we talked all about cholesterol, and that certainly has implications for what we're going to talk about today. But if people want to hear that podcast, I would recommend they go back and listen to Ivor's first podcast that we did together, because that one is one of my favorite ones we've ever done. I so have appreciated all of the work you've been doing throughout this coronavirus pandemic craziness because of your perspective as an engineer and the way you look at the numbers. For people who aren't familiar with you, just tell us a little bit, little bit about your background and how you like to think about things because I think that's so critical for you know, really coherent, intelligent analysis of what's going on right now. And I've, like I said, I've so appreciated your perspectives. Hey, thanks, Paul, uh, for those kind words. Yeah, well, just background without getting into the cholesterol and all that stuff. That's, as you say, it's already there. But I've spent around 30 years as a biochemical engineer. I was always highly technical, mathematical. And when I went into my career, I've spent 30 years in management and technical leadership positions in complex uh, part manufacture, high volume various industries, medical device and electrofluidic devices. But the thing was, I always led teams in problem solving, complex problem solving. And probably the biggest one I ever did was a few years ago. And in interestingly, a lot of them are a little like Corona. They don't involve humans, but they involve many uh, interacting causes, very complicated, and sometimes a six-month lag between the factor that causes the problem and you've shipped all the product, maybe millions of products into the field, and then the field collapses. But it starts slowly, and then the collapse increases. And you've got to decode the whole thing. And the biggest one I've led uh, ended up being around $200 million in cash flow was lost. So to put things in perspective, this is not small stuff. And the interesting thing is Corona is very like these. It's highly complex. There's many factors. There's one virus or strains. But there's many, many factors that decide whether you are actually impacted or you're not really impacted at all. So there's a lot of root causes for impact. There's lag times, infection to symptoms, symptoms to death, sadly, if that occurs. And there's all exponential spread of issues throughout millions of units. So the funny thing is, when this thing started happening, I, I intuitively was reading it very quickly. But then I waited until I'd actually analyzed it reasonably before being outspoken. But I got a lot of pushback. And all I was doing was talking about the data. Hey, guys, look at the trend. Look at the shape. Look at these inconsistencies, these um, distinctions between here and here. But I'm doing what I do naturally. But it appears 99.99% of people out there, and you've seen the media, it don't come natural to them. There's certainly been a lot of pushback toward me and you and anyone who's questioning the status quo right now, which is what's so interesting. And it's, it's fascinating for me. The majority of the people that, that I have previously shared ideas with 
tended to think similarly to the way that I was thinking, which made me feel good. I was like, okay, I'm not completely off base because a lot of the, when this whole thing started, I just felt strange about it. I thought, this doesn't make sense. Why are we doing this? And we're going to get into all of this today. Do lockdowns make sense? How do they compare with social distancing? What are we seeing with numbers across various countries? What do we think about the R not? What do we think about the infectivity? What do we think about the case fatality rate? Is it accurate? And so I had to question myself thinking, my goodness, I'm a doctor. If I say something, people are going to interpret it as a doctor saying this. Is it irresponsible? Am I harming people? Am I leading people astray? But I too had to really try and be authentic and honest with what I was feeling. And it's been a struggle the last eight weeks, but I think we're coming out of it. And I can say at the end of all of it that I really believe strongly that the things you are saying are very right and that, that a lot of my suspicions were not completely wrong. And that makes me feel good, not because I want to be right or because I didn't want to be wrong, but because I, I wanted to kind of trust my gut on this a little bit. So it's been an interesting experience for me too, but the amount of vehement pushback has been enormous. And I think that there's a lot of people who don't like anyone questioning the status quo, even when we are all just trying to help, you know, everyone live a better life, everyone live a more rich life, and no one is advocating for deaths, and no one is advocating for money over lives. We're all just trying to understand how to save the most lives or how to move forward in the most intelligent way. So crazy stuff. What, yep. take us through this. I mean, what have you seen over the course of the infection? You have some amazing videos on your YouTube channel, which I would encourage everyone to check out. You've been doing these updates throughout the coronavirus thing, but give us your overall perspective on where we've come from and where we are now. Yeah, well, whew, big story. So really starting off, uh, I was looking firstly really at the Italian data and the initial kind of where Europe got hit because China was always questionable, you know, we weren't really sure. And when Italy started getting hit, I was looking at the numbers and it seemed to me that they hadn't prepared. I had been saying publicly that this is going to come, right? Italy's seen cases. So why aren't we protecting the most at risk? Like the care homes, the elderly, you know, using masks early on. I was horrified when they said, you don't use masks. And that made no sense to me. And engineering friends of mine went ahead and ordered masks early in February right? That's how far ahead they were looking. And uh, I couldn't believe they were telling us not to use masks. And then they were doing nothing. Like they weren't doing anything really anywhere. So when Italy began to ramp up and suddenly began to look really bad, then they began to react and do stuff. But I figured if it's in Italy and the stories are coming out about the Alps, and I knew in Dublin, a lot of school kids and everything had been over in Italy, you know, and skiing and all. And there was initial stories of cases and symptoms. And I said, if it's got an R value of three or more, way more than the flu, and there's a lot of asymptomatic, most likely, because it's a coronavirus, it's a pretty tough one on older and people and sick people, but it's going to spread like wildfire. So I had to watch it going right up to March, where they didn't really do much. And I figured it has to be all over the place. Italy had gone right up. Other countries were reporting it. And for me, what happened was, rather than taking good distancing measures from early on where they're effective in flattening the curve, they started very late. And I began to think, sure, there's three, four week lags. So we're starting so late, we're going to see a hump anyway, you know? 
And then, of course, uh, just taking a bird's eye view, when the deaths started really happening in each of the countries, then they began to do lockdowns. And that's where I said, hold on a minute. You know, the distancing will make a difference. The lockdown, because it's going to be so prevalent already, is not going to make much extra difference. And now you're going to get all the negative impacts with no payback. You know, so that was kind of a bird's eye level view of where I went through it. In March, I interviewed Tucker Goodrich, and he had done even deeper analysis than I had of the Italian figures and showed that there was a spike early on, which is the natural pattern for viruses in or or zero, if you will, or or. And then it curved down and it was right down the downslope. And then they did a lockdown. But it didn't change much after the lockdown if you allowed for the lag period, infection to symptom to death. So the numbers were telling us what we felt, that the lockdown was too late and wouldn't add much more. And now the interesting thing now is, and I don't know if people realize this. So Tucker said it, I said it, and several other mathematician friends I have around the world said it. One guy pointed out that the rate of increase of infections correlates exactly with the rate of increase of doing tests, <laughs> which kind of tells you, right? But since then, what have we got? We've got the orthodoxy, the media, and all of the experts telling us that lockdowns are great and we need to keep going. None of them that I can see have done any analysis of the data. It's just faith-based. However, if you ignore me, ignore Tucker, ignore you, ignore others, that's fine. A Oxford professor who's head of the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine, right? that's not fringe, him and his team two weeks ago analyzed the UK data and showed that the peak of deaths was the 8th of April and the peak of infections was earlier and that the lockdown didn't change the curve, which was already coming down from social distancing. A professor in Stanford, who's a Nobel laureate, saw this phenomenon in the Chinese data. Then he verified it in the Italy data and then verified it in the other data. So that's two professors, including a Nobel laureate. And then we have a professor of mathematics in Israel and he did the analysis and said, look, I don't know why, because I'm not a virus guy, but mathematically, the lockdown didn't add anything. And a week later, um, where was I saying it was? Israel. The Israel prime minister a week later, which is a few days ago, announced pretty much the end of the lockdown and kids can even see their grandparents. And I presume they're going that they trust him because how can you have a lockdown, which in Israel was very severe for five weeks, still have loads of prevalence of the virus and then stop doing it? I mean, what did the lockdown do if you can just stop doing it and you're not worried about it going up? Exactly. So I'd say there's myriad points now, not proof, but myriad points and many professors who are saying what we're saying, that the lockdown doesn't add to smart distancing. But no one wants to hear that. And as I've heard you say eloquently, and as I've been trying to communicate as well, from the beginning, both social distancing and the lockdown were intended to, quote, flatten the curve. And the point of flattening the curve is to not overwhelm the glass ceiling of healthcare resources. Now, healthcare resources were not overwhelmed in the UK. They were not overwhelmed in Sweden. We're going to talk about Sweden today. They, they probably got kind of close to being overwhelmed in New York City, but I don't think they were overwhelmed in New York City. And so, as you said in one of your recent videos, 
the ideas around this lockdown seem to have shifted into people thinking that somehow it's going to beat the virus or somehow the lockdown is going to change the absolute number of people who will eventually be exposed to the virus. So much of the media messaging right now seems to be so fear-based and the underlying message just appears to be that somehow the lockdown is going to prevent you and I and the people we know from getting the virus eventually, which I just don't think anyone reputable is claiming. I think everyone is accepting that the absolute number of people who will be exposed to the virus is almost unchangeable. That the point of the lockdown was to not overwhelm the healthcare system. And if we have not overwhelmed the healthcare system, if infections are declining or things have gone across the top of the peak, so, so to speak, or are declining, that now is the time to end the lockdown, which may not have made much sense in the first place, like you're saying, like Tucker's saying, like any mathematicians are saying, because we were probably already behind the peak of the curve. And in that case, I think everyone is just kind of living in a fairy tale and everyone is confused about what we're trying to do right now with coronavirus and what the reality of a respiratory coronavirus is. The extent of the virus spread, I believe, is much wider than, we, than we're being told. And I think you've talked about this as well. And in absolute terms, I can't see a situation in which the majority of humans on this planet, maybe not 90%, but at least 60%, in the next year get exposed to this virus. Do you agree or disagree with that? Because the way that I think about this is that this global pandemic began with 20 cases in China. When the world was open and everyone was traveling and moving, a respiratory virus is very contagious, and perhaps that speaks volumes about the r not about the transmissibility of this coronavirus. But if a global pandemic began with 20 cases, how can we believe that it's not going to continue to spread no matter what we do? Certainly when the lockdowns end and when the social distancing ends, there, there would, there's going to be more than 20 cases left in the world. How do we believe that this is going to change anything about the absolute numbers of people exposed to the virus? Do you think about this the same way that I am? Yeah, essentially, and we're joined by many epidemiologists, but they're, they're not welcome on prime time. And that's essentially it. Unless you're a scaremonger, you're not welcome, which is fascinating. But the Swedish guys, certainly, that's the way they see it. There is no running away and hiding in the basement from the virus. You strive to protect the at-risk, the healthy keep working because they're at extremely low risk and it will inevitably go around anyway. But the key thing is how do you protect the at risk? And I was saying this six weeks ago, over 65 with medical conditions, over 75, maybe without even overt medical conditions are the at risk group. What strategy would protect them until there's a better prophylactic or a better treatment? I think vaccines are so far out. They don't, they don't change at all our, our near-term strategy anyway. So the only argument you could make is if you flatten more, you might have people who get to a point where there is actually a really good treatment. It's unlikely because we've been dealing with these types of viruses for 30, 40 years and treatments are just really tough. And what's more, vaccines are really tough too. They've never been able to do one for a corona. But you could say if you push it out, then some people may benefit from a future treatment. But the problem is that social distancing would do that. 
you don't you don't like you said you 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 do a lockdown if there's an absolute catastrophe and your hospitals can't cope but we know that even sweden with no lockdown do you know they only reached 60% approximately of their icu capacity they had 600 beds they jumped it up in a week or two to 1000 thinking it was going to be really bad and they never really went over 600 i believe and they've been coming down in usage for the last 3 weeks so so social distancing would have done that and spread out and protecting the older and the at-risk cohort for maybe a treatment that might come in the next few months. It would have been a reasonable measure. But, but I agree. This idea that you can hide from a virus. Now, I will say one extra thing, though, Paul. I got papers and I checked this out. There have been many, many coronaviruses, and they're calling this one the novel coronavirus. And the word novel is make, to make you think, oh. But the reality is it's just a different one. All the others were novel when they started, right? But this is the latest, so it's novel. Exactly. Yeah, but oh, it's novel. Uh, and I said to someone, it's only novel because it's the new one, but the others were. No, this one is much more transmissible. Yeah, I know, but it's, it's the latest one is more transmissible and it's more severe, but it's still a coronavirus. So... Uh, I looked up the previous coronaviruses, and without exception, the literature and the uh, experiments on multi-year studies on humans, I have one with four coronaviruses, and they're extremely seasonal. So the thing about them is more seasonal than the flu. They're tight from November to April in the, nor in the Northern Hemisphere, and they fade away in summer without exception. There's no particular reason to believe this would be different, and the only thing is, if they will fade a lot in the summer, well, there's a couple of things. A, inappropriately, credit will be given to the lockdown for an apparent fade that's sustained. But a lockdown couldn't have done that, but they'll still give credit. The other thing is, if you held out with great distancing to summer, the virulence and everything would fall down and maybe give people a bit more time to get a treatment. But you know, it'll come back in winter anyway. If you take advantage of the summer and you don't let people get in now, they're going to get in winter anyway. I don't know. It's, it's a little crazy. So I want to screen yeah. share a couple of things. Um, yeah. This is an article from uh, Spiked um, by a professor of, uh, I believe, political science, someone else that likes to look at the data. There is no empirical evidence for these lockdowns. People can read this online. Here's the link. I'll try and link to it in the show notes. And yeah. basically the conclusion is, as we've been saying, um, that if you look at the lockdowns and you look at the number of cases in the states that lock down quickly, you look at the number of deaths in the places that lock down quickly, um, that there really is not a clear difference. And there was an epidemiologist in New Zealand who got this data and created this model, which you can find ah. at this website. And this looks fairly complex. It's a, uh, basically I'll just let the, the watcher on YouTube or if you guys are listening to this on iTunes, if you wanna watch this snippet on uh, YouTube, you can see this model. But this model uh, will look at the, um, the comparisons in COVID-19 deaths per million on the y-axis per density per square mile and state under lockdown is a, is a Boolean measure here across the third axis. And you can see that 
basically the takeaway from this one is that there, there is no difference between uh, the COVID-19 deaths per million, whether there was lockdown or not. The real correlation comes from whether there was a, um, whether there was a difference in the population density of the state. And you see New York is out here. It's a real outlier because of the high population density. So density correlates with deaths per million. And I think we're seeing that across the world, but being under lockdown or not has really no correlation um, with the COVID-19 deaths per million. Again, that is data from this article and spiked from this uh, professor who wrote this article and spiked, and then uh, it was made into that, that visual model by the other professor there. And I heard you talk about this with um, Sweden, Ivor, that, um, that most of the deaths were in Stockholm, which is where there's the majority of the population and density. I think in the United States, the places where there was higher density, New Orleans, Chicago, New York, New York City, New York City with these super spreaders, those are the places that were the hardest hit. And that I've always kind of questioned the validity, the, uh, the sensibility of doing a homogeneous lockdown across the country when there's a very heterogeneous spread of the virus. And I don't think we needed to do a lockdown. Now, at this point, it's water under the bridge, but I think these types of thinking help us, number one, know how to move forward from this, and number two, give us some indication of what to do, as you're saying, when this comes back in the fall, and it probably will. Yeah, I mean, if it behaves like any coronavirus in the past, and epidemiologists have said this, and virologists, again, they're not popular in the media um, for some reason, but the reality is that you would expect a proper crisis management situation would have geographical and local aspects to it. So based on the rate of spread, you would have more severe measures if that local area's hospitals were overloaded. Um, but otherwise, you'd want an element of the normal curve to go through its normal you know, progression. Uh, so you wouldn't have problems later in winter by oversuppressing. You would think that would be logical. Like California has very little impact, but I'm hearing that they're still locked down like crazy. But why? Then New York did no measures, allowed the subways to run with fewer cars. So they actually got very packed. So you get a high viral load and probably a higher death rate for, for, per person infected on average. And they did nothing when it was spreading like wildfire. And then when they blew up, they started locking down. But now Cuomo was saying 65% of all the cases in the last week or two are from people who are genuinely staying locked down at home. Yes. This, this, there's a barn door here. I said many, many weeks ago, it's a high transmissible virus that we know the early cases were in January and now they're saying December in UK, France, and in Italy, maybe November. We knew weeks ago that it had been spreading like hell. Uh, lockdown is for very early on when you know there's only a few people and you track and trace and you get everyone to step back if there's a really serious virus and maybe you actually control it and contain it. That would be in a, a very bizarre situation with a, with a bubonic plague, for instance. You'd be doing that. But when it spread like wildfire, and then you do social distancing and that changes the curve and keeps your hospitals under control. 
why do you add in a lockdown just because with a three-week lag, now you're beginning to see people dying, older and infirm, mostly. Because you see them dying, you're now doing a different strategy because you're emotional. This is tough stuff, but you should be acting on the logic to help, help the people, not acting on fear and, oh my God, it, it's just not logical. It's not being run like what myself or Tucker would see as proper crisis management. You need cool heads you know, for the better, for all of society to do it properly. That's what's killing me the last few weeks. It doesn't feel like that at all. So Ireland, for instance, has come around the curve. Most of Europe has come around the curve. Sweden, with no lockdown, has come around the curve and are coming down. Right, three or four weeks, their ICU is coming down and their deaths have, are coming down. And 12 European countries are releasing lockdown and they're not really seeing an increase maybe because we're coming into the summer. And, um, and Ireland came out with a four-month plan. Uh, and the lockdown is being phased out over four months. That brings us right through the summer. And I'm thinking... Right into the, right into the fall. Right into the winter. And I'm just thinking, what am I missing here? Because with Ireland's place on the curve, having turned the curve good old like the others, and Denmark... Having sending kids back to school a couple of weeks ago, and Germany similarly, and Israel, I think I mentioned already, has completely taken away nearly all the lockdown. And they're, they're putting in a four-month plan uh, where the lockdown really, for the next month or two, doesn't change a whole lot, like five-kilometer limits from your house. And, and, and bars and restaurants don't really open until next September. And I'm thinking, they must have some logic but what is their logic? I, I honestly don't know. And one person told me who I trust as a, a great manager and a technical person, primarily a manager, but he's no slouch in the technical and engineering. And he said, Ivor, I think it's just that they were terrified by the models. Their terror was fueled by Italy. Their terror was stoked further when the death hump did happen in their country, like in Ireland. And the, and and every day the figures are coming out. And the politicians are also, their ratings have soared. And every evening when they go on television and say, oh, we've saved lives and thank you for, for locking yourself down, everyone's supporting it and they look like leaders. And they're probably a bit addicted to that aspect. So if you put it all together, the risk of something, infections going back up again and they'll be blamed, versus the adulation for what they're doing by locking everyone down. It, it's a heady mixture. It's all upside for a politician to play it safe and stay locked, really slowly releasing. And the problem with that is it doesn't make sense, but it suits them and it keeps them safe. And you would say then, what about the economy? I know people in Ireland, artisan food producers, you know, making the most incredible meats. They're destroyed. They've run out of cash. Corporates will mop them up. We've got 200,000 unemployed. They're paying billions in unemployment to the lockdown. But the politician doesn't need to worry about that. And, and someone will say, what do you mean? How could a politician not be worried about the economy? Because they know you can blame it on a small piece of RNA. They've got the ultimate scapegoat. In three months, if it's a mess and our debt is through the roof and we're beginning to recover, Who's going to blame them? They were praised for locking down, for saving lives. 
uh, the economy wasn't our fault. It was the naughty virus. So do you see what a, what's that phrase, Paul? You might know it. It's not double jeopardy, but there's a thing about jeopardy where you're, you're perversely, inversely incentivized. It, it's a, I don't know. What a, I don't know which one yeah, you're talking about. It's in I, insurance, I, I think, because like if you insure yourself, but it makes sense for you to crash your car because you'll make out like a bandit. It, right. It's that kind of phenomenon. And right now, everything, everything driving them seems to be not the logical crisis management thing. It's what we're seeing, but it's all upside for them with all with doing it wrong. Uh, sorry, that was a rant, but that that's the phenomenon and the media. And I, I agree with you. Yeah. It's a political issue rather than a medical issue at this point. It's not a scientific issue. It's not an mm -hmm. epidemiologic issue. It's a, it's a political issue. Um, I'll just share a few more things on the Great. screen. Uh, April 26th, uh, opinion in the Wall Street Journal, do lockdowns save lives? In many places, data says no. Again, this is a little bit old. Uh, we are um, recording this on uh, May the um, 8th, just so people know, but this is a similar conversation from this uh, author saying, just as we said with those models that I showed earlier, there's really no, no change. Um, another New York Times editorial, again, I'm just sharing opinion columnists here, uh, but I think it's valuable to know there are other people speaking out against this. This one is from April the 24th. The title is America Shouldn't Have to Play by, play by New York Rules. National Lockdown is Bad Medicine and Worse Politics. Look, there's politics. <laughs> and then a couple of very interesting articles. So I don't know if you saw this one. The title of it is oh, yeah. Full Lockdown Policies in Western Europe Countries Have No Evident Impacts on the COVID-19 Epidemic. This is done uh, by some data scientists um, at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and um, in uh, British Columbia. And people can find the paper, but basically they say here that extrapolating pre-lockdown growth rate trends we provide estimates of the death toll in the absence of any lockdown policies and show that these strategies might not have saved any life in Western Europe. We also show that neighboring countries applying less restrictive social distancing measures as opposed to police enforced home containment experience a very similar time evolution of the epidemic. And as we've been talking about, Ivor, this is pretty staggering when very smart people, very smart minds can come to the same conclusions from a mathematical perspective. And this is not, this is not to say, oh, lockdowns didn't work. Not a big deal. We won't do it next time. This is to say lockdowns didn't work. And, it, and actually they were harmful because of suicide rates, because of the economic implications, and because of all of the people that will die because of those things in connection with the lockdown. So this is really the blood that will never be on the politicians' hands. It's very easy to, um, to just, this is invisible blood. It's just like you're saying, um, blood that is shed in a hospital, if, if an ICU is overwhelmed, yes. If people are dying from coronavirus, that is very deep, dark red blood that is gonna be all over the hands of the politicians. But I believe, and I think you do as well, that there is more blood that will be shed in the long term because of the policies that were made, but it will be invisible blood. It will be transparent blood that these politicians will never be known to be connected with because who will be able to account for the thousands of deaths that are associated with suicide? I saw an article in Australia that the suicide deaths in Australia as, a, as related to this current lockdown will outstrip, will 
will be greater than the COVID-19 deaths? And, and who will be able to even account for or attribute the deaths related to poverty, unemployment, substance abuse during this epidemic, during this pandemic? So there will be blood that is on the hands of the politicians and they're gonna, they're gonna come out looking like roses and then there will be a mountain more or just voluminous volumes more of invisible blood that will never be attributable to these people. And I think that that was the political decision that was made. If that's making me sound like a conspiracy theorist, then so be it. I certainly don't, don't mean to be. Well, well, no, Paul, I mean, conspiracy theories, you can identify conspiracy theory quite easily if it's illogical. Uh, Occam's razor. So let's say the 9-11 attacks were done as an inside job by the CIA, right? So they got all explosives people to go in for months and drill the columns. And, you know, you know it wasn't. It doesn't make sense. But what you said isn't conspiracy. It's just political reality in the modern world. Um, this happens all the time. It's just we're witnessing a once-in-a-lifetime surreal example of it, I think. And... I don't know about suicides and I don't know about how many cancer victims and there's heart attack victims, multiple deaths in Canada because people are not going in because of the situation. If you integrate the area under the curve for the next six or 12 months as, as the corona passes away, and which is clearly doing at the moment, um, it's going to be a huge number. And it almost certainly would seem to stand to reason it's going to be bigger than these deaths. Now, I'll just say something. Actually, I might share something briefly because I realized I got a look at all-cause mortality in Europe. Now, okay. So basically, I was wondering, well, all-cause mortality is the only thing you can trust because there's a lot of talk, and I think it's not conspiracy that there's been a lot of doctors saying they're being told, even if you think it might be corona, call it. So look, I'm not making a judgment on that, but it's very hard to know. But we do have a spike in all-cause mortality in Euromomo, which has tracked for many years the overall mortality across 20 countries of Europe. So I was sent this because I didn't know it existed, and I said, right. So what I looked at was I picked 2018 as an example. And what you've got here is under 65s and over 65s. And they take the standard seasonal average of 20 years, I think, where more people die in the winter, that's low vitamin D and you have more heart attacks and stuff in the winter and, you know, the stuff. And in 2018, I integrated the area under the curve of the excess deaths relating to influenza and respiratory. So there's around 20,000 for under 64s and around 140,000 for over 65s. So in Europe, there was around 160,000 excess deaths in the flu season, 0.027. In, in 2018. Now, right. you might ask, you know, how big, how big was that talked about? Well, I've checked with people and I had no idea and no one I know, I can't find anyone who even knew that 2018 was a challenge. Now, over here, I'm not going to try and integrate the area under the curve because these are emerging curves. So I'm going to do a really harsh comparison. And this is a little out of date. I'm going to count all of the corona deaths as the excess. And I know a lot of them might not really be corona, but this is, this is a, I'm being very fair. So it looks like around 145,000 for the 20 Euro Momo countries 
0.033%. So right now we've got 160,000 excess in 18, which no one even noticed. And we have 145 and... From the look of the curves, I'm not making a prediction here, but it looks like we may get up to 450 by the time the curves currently in European countries fade out. That's, I'm just making a guess. So maybe it'll end up for this season being three times worse than 18. But I think we've done a little more than three times what we did in 18. I think that's fair. No conspiracy. I mean, look around. We've locked down the whole of European economies. So that makes no mathematical sense. Now, if this went on and on and on, and Corona kept at the current rate or higher for 12 months, well, then you'd say, wow, this is much bigger. But like we said, with the seasonality, and especially examples like Sweden, Sweden are in the middle of the pack of Europe in terms of impact. And Sweden are not really locked down, and they're accepting that everyone's going to broadly get it, or 20-30%, which kind of means everyone in a sense so if it does end up being, you know what I mean? It's three times 2018, maybe. What's, what's going on? These are just numbers. No one can accuse me of being undermining it or not caring. I have elderly relations. I've warned them about the key risk factors. You know, my mother's 80. I've told her how this thing works, what the risks are. Luckily, she's very slim, insulin sensitive with great metabolic markers. So I told her, if I was a diabetic at 56 years of age, I'd be more worried than you. But I have people too, and I've always cared, and people know I care. I'm eight years fighting to save lives from heart disease, chronic disease. But equally, I have to look at the numbers and say, what exactly is the game plan here? I think that's fair. I think it is too. And I, I think that it's interesting at this graph that you're, sh you're showing to see that in 2017, there was a, uh, some sort of a, a, a deviation from the averages also in terms of all-cause mortality. Yeah. Every winter there's this, uh, at least in 2017 and 2018, and 2019 not quite as much, but 2018 and 2017 there were deviations from all-cause mortality. This, this season looks to be different, and these curves do look yeah. steeper and will probably be bigger. And, but you bring up a fair question, which is how much bigger? And as I talked about in the podcast that I did with Kirk Parsley, we won't know until next flu season whether this will sort of even out. And he brought up this very good point that if, if more people uh, lose their lives to coronavirus this season, less people may next season because at any one point in the population of countries, of the Western civilizations, of the world civilization, there are mm. people who are susceptible to respiratory viruses. And what you and I are both asking and getting vilified for are these very hard questions, which is, what is the appropriate reaction to this? People die every day. And this is not to be callous or insensitive. Yeah. We all accept risk driving our cars. We all accept, I accept risk surfing, right? You accept risk walking across the street. And in, in anything, we all accept risk. And we, I, I just hope that you and I can add some sane voices to this and say, hey, look, let's remember that the media really is just a fear-based message right now. I've heard you on your podcast. You did a great one with Paul Mason that I want to uh, share some of the data that was talked about in that podcast as well. But you did a great one with Paul Mason in which you guys went into the, the connections between 
coronavirus risk and obesity, coronavirus risk and insulin resistance. I did a Huge. podcast last week with Asim Malhotra. We talked about that as well. And that has never been talked about in the media. It's all this fear-based messaging. And what we're looking at here are just numbers. And I want to get into some of these risk factors more and break it all down for people so that we can totally change this conversation so that it's not so fear and hysteria based because as you've said multiple times in, in your messaging throughout this, this pandemic, this is really a disease of people with comorbidities and people who are elderly. That's very, very clear at this point. Sure, there are a few outliers and the media is going to tell us more about the outliers because it wants to scare you know, the heck out of us. But I heard you say this on your podcast with Paul, like you have not seen any messaging in the media about these stark connections between insulin resistance and coronavirus. And I, I thought the same thing. I was like, you know, I haven't seen anyone in the media talking about this, but it's a huge risk factor. And so, yes, there probably will be an increase in all-cause mortality this year across the world from coronavirus. My suspicion, my hypothesis, which could be wrong, is that if there's a greater uh, amount of death this year from respiratory illness, there will be a smaller amount of death next year because this is a little bit more of a virulent virus that is, you know, making those who are just a little bit, you know, it, it's a little bit stronger. So it's going to take those who are susceptible away from us, which is tragic, but this is the way of life. And, and then the empowering conversation becomes like you're having with your parents, like I'm having with my parents who are 69 years old, 70 this year. How do you empower yourself? How do you become strong in the face of any illness? This isn't just like we've said from the beginning, this is not about hiding from a virus. This is not about cowering in your basement. Like you said, Cuomo is saying 65, 66% of New Yorkers who are new infections were in their homes doing social distancing. This is not the answer. And it's going to have ramifications in terms of economic collapse, depression, substance abuse. This is not the answer. This is the yeah. wrong conversation. And you know what's crazy, Ivor, is um, I, I tweeted something on uh, Twitter months ago, and I said the conversation around coronavirus is all wrong. And I got crucified for it. Yeah, I should repost it now. I got crucified for it. And I think that people wanted to make me look silly and say, how can you not talk about social distancing? How can you not talk about a lockdown? That's the key answer here. And I said, the conversation about coronavirus is all wrong. I tweeted this probably in the end of February, maybe even in the middle of February, I tweeted, it's all wrong. The conversation should be about obesity and metabolic disease. And of course, people want to twist your words and make it sound like mm. I'm saying the carnivore diet is going to cure coronavirus or some baloney like that. But now more than ever, I believe, as we're saying now, the conversation around coronavirus has been all wrong from the beginning. And not to say that social distancing can't be helpful, not to say that, that we shouldn't understand who is most at risk for coronavirus and protect them, your parents, my parents, based on age, but let's think about comorbidities. But who has actually had the conversations in the media? Who has had the bravery, the courage in the media to talk about the real risk factors? I don't think anyone. No, the, the occasional article touches on it. Oh, well, black and Asian minorities in the UK have 3.4 times the risk. And then they try and blame it on impoverishment when, of course, it's insulin resistance and vitamin D severe deficiency. We, but none, none of the media even covers the causes. They just mention the correlation and then dismiss it to talk, to talk about deaths again and death and death and they're just talking about death all the time and it loses its currency. But you know, you mentioned, yeah, it's mostly old. I mean, Boston, I always 
use Boston data is incredibly well presented on their government website. They got a couple of thousand deaths, big deal. And they had 500 checked and the average age was 81 and 97.5% had one or more medical conditions. And you can just see below 65, it faded to a few people out of 500. Now, if you've got millions of people affected, the tiny percentage who are younger will still be a sizable number. You know, there'd be thousands around the country or the world, but you can't save everyone from a virus. It's absurd to think we can. And you know, one other thing I'll just say before I forget, a really smart guy I know who's a relation of mine, he fought with me on cholesterol. He said, you can't be right and all the doctors and everyone is wrong about cholesterol. And the same with fat and the same with everything and meat. But, but sure, the WHO says meat causes cancer. So he's always fought with me and he's a cynic and he's also quite orthodox. He rang me two days ago. I'm not joking, Paul. This is a true story. And he said to me, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, is this thing kind of a load of crap? Now, they're his words. I'm not saying this whole thing's. They're his words. And I said, have you been watching my stuff or my stats? No. Why? I said, well, how did, how did you figure that? Why do you figure that? And he says, well, I noticed in the last couple of weeks, um, this is a pandemic and all, but I said, I don't know anyone who knows anyone or even probably knows anyone who's died or even got very sick. So I figured, hold on, where is it? Where is the pandemic? And I explained to him 60% in Ireland are in nursing homes, so you're never going to see them, and the others are mostly elderly. Ah, and I said, uh, is that it though? And you know what he said to me then? He said, no, no, there was another thing that clinched it for me. And he said something I knew that I brought up weeks ago, but he thought of it. He likes shopping and there's still food stores open, obviously, but not many because we're locked down. And he goes out a lot to them because he, he's, he's stuck at home, you know? And he noticed that there's even women in their 60s and all and older people working in a lot of our stores. And he noticed over the last month or six weeks, none of them got sick in any of the stores, certainly not died, but none of them even got sick. And he hmm. asked a few of them, and he said, how can we have a pandemic when the least lockdown people in the country by a country mile, those people are eight hours a day with the great unwashed flowing through. And we know loads of them are infected because look at Cuomo, 66% at home. And he says, nothing happened to them. So how can it be a big pandemic? And I said, well, you're right. It's an old person, infirm person are getting hit really hard. And it's probably three times worse then 18, 2018, and I showed him the stuff. And I said, yeah, it's bad and it's tough. But he worked it out and he's not scientific or technical, just logic. And I think a lot of people are beginning to wake up to this. I think, I think a lot of people are beginning to wake up to this now. And again, it's not, it's not to be callous. It's not to be insensitive oh. to those who are dying. Because I know people who know people who have died. No one that I know has gotten coronavirus mm. and suffered greatly from it. Uh, I did a podcast recently with my friend Kyle Kingsbury, and he knew people who had died from coronavirus. But I think that we're just trying to be honest about the risk. And I think we should get into that. And I want to touch on a few of these pieces. Um, and I don't want to hold you too long. But Oh, no, no, that's fine. And just to clarify, yeah, now, I do know someone who knows someone whose in-laws had a parent die but the person was in their 80s and they've been in the care home for a long time with many medical complications. So that's my network. But I, you know, of course, there's, there's a lot of people suffering, but 
we have to keep in mind the figures I showed were 0.03% of people in Europe. And that's why you don't know, because they're older, they're generally got conditions, and it's a tiny percentage. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we saw in Sweden too. Um, and, and maybe we can get into some Sweden data as well in this podcast. But you've shown great stuff in some of your videos. And I've talked about this as well in my podcast and, and in other podcasts that I've been on showing that the Sweden uh, case fatality rate, or at least the Sweden death rate per million or per capita, is in the middle of Europe. Uh, it's higher than Finland, it's higher than Denmark, but it's lower than France and, and uh, Italy and Spain, and, and I believe it's lower than the UK. I'd have to be check that number, oh, it but it's on, the yeah. order, it's on the order of magnitude of all of those things. So Sweden's death rate is not astronomically higher, and, and they did not lock down, they did social distancing. So we can draw the distinction between what you call smart distancing, which I think is a great, a great adage, or social distancing versus a full lockdown. I think at this point, most uh, would agree, or many, perhaps not all, I want to be open to all opinions, many would agree that perhaps the lockdown is not something to continue and maybe wasn't the right thing in general. But there are still people screaming at the top of their lungs on Twitter that if we stop this lockdown, we will lose millions of lives. And I just think, what are you talking? Like, I just don't think that that's the case. <laughs> but that's crazy. No, and then there's even- They have no grasp. Uh, and I don't want to be patronizing, but they have no grasp. I mean, a month or two ago, if you said it could keep growing, it's fair enough. Fear, it could grow. But, but to be honest, the Italian data and the Chinese data even, and certainly the data we have now, it's showing that the same pattern, almost regardless of lockdown, as, exactly. as you would expect for a virus. And that's it. I mean, it's tough, but it is what it is. Which comes back to, to the other point. Thing? What's that? Oh, I thought you wanted to share. You were going to share some piece of data. or, or maybe Yeah, not. I can share some. I'll share something in a second. But that goes back to the other point that you can't hide from a virus. And I, 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 I love what you're saying there. And I've seen the same thing, that the curve looks the same. The overall shape of the curve looks the same in, in many countries, regardless of their lockdown. And it's, it's just, it's quite striking. It, it's very, um, you know, yeah, it's, it, data. it's very I mean, eye-opening. Yeah. People can talk about second waves and all, but the whole thing about people who got infected, could get reinfected, came out of Korea. And Korea, five or six days ago, came out with a worldwide announcement. They made a mistake. They had 260 people they thought were reinfected and they realized that they were dead virus fragments, which last the half-life of the cells in the people is around three months. And they were looking at dead fragments. So they've actually stated now that that is not the case and people will not get reinfected because they will have antibodies and this is like other, other diseases. But, but that story is still circulating about reinfection and fears, but it doesn't seem to be true. Oh, there it it's is. All, it's all fear-mongering, yeah. The Korea Herald tests and recovered patients found false positives, not reinfections, experts say, which isn't surprising at all because this is an RT-PCR test, right? This is a test yeah. that uh, is just looking for fragments of RNA in the posterior pharynx and is not going to tell us about uh, the reinfections. But the media loves this story, Ivor. They love yeah. it. So the, the other piece of data I wanted to share is this article. I don't know if you've seen this one. Uh, using ILI, ILI as influenza-like illness surveillance to estimate uh, state-specific case detection rates and forecast SARS-CoV-2 spread in the United States. 
pretty interesting paper. Um, and what the conclusions are uh, here, together these results suggest a conceptual model for the COVID pandemic in the US in which rapid spread across the US are combined with a large population of infected patients with presumably mild to moderate clinical symptoms. And so what they're saying here is that it's probably much more widely spread than we believe. And that, in my opinion, may be a reason that number one, lockdowns don't work. And number two, that the curves all kind of look the same. That if we're seeing the spread much more wide than, than we're being than we're expecting, then mm. we'll see what happens in the fall. But if there are not for this virus, is five or six, for instance, then perhaps it's already moved through the majority of the population. Uh, I, I think many places are, uh, Sweden is estimating 25% of the population has already seen the virus, which will certainly slow the spread of the virus. I think the number could be the same in the US as it is with influenza viruses. What's interesting to me, I'll just offer this piece, uh, this question for you is, you know, I think, what do we think the influenza R0 is between one and two, right? 1.4, or 1.6? Oh, I've seen figures of 1.3 actually pretty consistently, yeah. but it could yeah. be up to a little more. But this one, R0, of course, being the very start where, where it surges. And I think this one is three, but recently a Korean or Chinese team have reassessed and said three to possibly up to five point something. And that's, that's at the very start when it first spreads out. But of course, what's happening is it's turning its curve and the aura is falling down with, within a month or two as it goes through its thing. The R is always changing. And there's been, there's been a lot of articles about that as well, um, yeah. which I can share. Um, oh, actually, that's interesting because I've gathered, I won't try and share them. They're in a rough format. But guys, mathematicians have looked at Ireland's release data from the government, and it's clear that the R came from three down to near one and leveled out before the lockdown. Uh, mm. The same applies in England. Professor Carl Hennigan in the Oxford uh, Evidence-Based Medicine Center, same thing. Israel, same thing. The Koch Institute in Germany clearly shows the R coming from three down to near one, which is the target, before their lockdown kicked in. And Sweden have released that their R, R is one now for around two weeks. So they've achieved an R of one without a lockdown. Oh, yes, this is the one I saw earlier today. Yeah. Sweden tames its R number without lockdown. Some people are saying Sweden's R number is 0 0.8. Uh, yeah. So, or are they're saying Sweden's is 0.85 with a, smar a smaller error margin of plus or minus 0 0.02 points. So they're estimating, and they're estimating the UK's R number is 0.8 and Sweden's is 0.85. And the policies have been completely different across those two places. And you can actually find the published study, uh, Sweden estimate of the effective reproductive number on 29 April, 2020. Uh, I'll try and link to this in the show notes as well. It's the actual reproductive number calculation, the data that was released um, from Sweden. But you make such a good point, Ivor, that the, the, the R naught of a virus is, uh, is, is going to change. It changes over the course of the infection. When it's rising exponentially, that's when it's the highest. When it levels off, it's not being spread as much. And now it's coming down. So if the R naught for these viruses is coming down, that's in, in, the, the most likely explanation I can hear, I can see for that, is 
is that the virus has spread through the population to some significant extent. Uh, social distancing could be involved in that. I think we've presented a lot of data that, that makes it very difficult to argue that lockdowns were a significant factor in that. And as you're saying, Israel, other European countries are reopening. If the lockdowns had been a real factor in lowering the r naught, we would have seen an increase in spread. We would have seen a re uh, a recrudescence or a, uh, a rise of the virus again, and we're not seeing that, which to me suggests the virus has moved through a lot of the population already. I love that you brought up earlier the fact that it will probably come back in the fall. But yeah, I mean, Sweden has well, been able to lower to the R0. Well, will it really in Sweden, though? I mean, certainly. Uh, exactly. Certainly, yeah, I mean, other countries maybe who've suppressed enough, um, you know, may get through the summer, but it's not going away and, uh, and may get a bump in the fall. Uh, you know, this is, there was one other professor in Germany and you know, the Germans, this guy is, <laughs> he's the opposite of a conspiracy theorist. He's a professor who's an expert in hygiene and viral spread. He was in charge of um, units that sometimes have to put chips in quarantine uh, in the ports and they would come in and decide whether the ship could leave or people could leave. He's an expert. And in March, he began to say stuff like we're saying, and he was dismissed from his role as director in some safety institute. And they said, we, we can't, we're not, uh, he's speaking for himself. And they let him go. And he said, okay, then. So that's what's happening. Experts who are bringing some sanity and, and, and calmness. And he also made the point, and he spoke very authoritatively, and he said, coronaviruses generally, when you hit 20 or 25%, the dynamic is 20 or 25% who have been infected, they tend to move on and fade away. He said, renoviruses are 80% plus, 80, 85. Now, I haven't looked into that science yet, but he was very definite. He said, basically, corona will hit 20-something. People who are sensitive, uh, exposed, you know, many will pass away. It's very sad. Uh, and then it will move on and it'll move over the other side of the world from April onwards or May, June onwards. You know, that's what he said. Now, I haven't looked up that aspect of science, but these voices should be heard. They should be on the panels of the people making these decisions. And if some expert wants to disagree with them, it should be open discussion. But I think that those people are being pushed aside without the conversation. And you know, an interesting thing, Paul, and sorry, I'll let you get back to it then, but I find that when I make the most compelling arguments against cholesterol being a major cause, like the catavans of higher APOB or LDLP, but the lowest heart disease in the world, the Americans have the highest. Um, people don't answer me. They stop engaging. They're willing to argue, but when you give them facts that are difficult, they just walk away. I think I'm seeing that with all these professors, Oxford, Stanford, Israeli University, this other guy in Germany. No one's actually saying, come on up here on the stage. Now you're wrong and here's why. Because the Orthodox side are not even doing the analysis. They're just making sure that their voices aren't heard, but they're not even saying they're wrong. They're not even saying they're wrong and saying, look, they're wrong. That's really worrying to me. It's very worrying. And I mean, I, I was just going to show this. Uh, why quarantines and social distancing might not matter. A video that I did with Tristan from Primal Edge Health got taken down from YouTube for violating community Ooh. policies. So anything that questions a quarantine 
or a lockdown, uh, you know, and again, this is a 42 minute video that someone flagged on YouTube. Uh, it got taken down for violating the community guidelines. And I, I fear, I mean, we'll see, I'll have to be careful how I title this podcast, but if I titled this podcast, lockdowns don't matter. <laughs> I bet it would get taken down from YouTube or lockdowns kill more people than they save, which might be an accurate title for this video. No. It would get taken down from YouTube. Uh, and it's, I mean, look, like, <laughs> I, I would name it more like, you know, lockdown efficacy, how more, how much more does it add over smart distancing? But the problem is, of course, you're now having to name it to avoid being censored. It's a tricky one. It's, it's tricky. a tricky one. It's tricky. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to maybe end with the glimmers of hope that you and I both know are out there mm -hmm. and the take home messages for people. You know, I, I so appreciate your analysis of this. And I think that hopefully what we've talked about so far has been helpful for people just sharing these perspectives on what the virus is doing, what the trends we've seen are looking like, where we expect it to go, what we're seeing in other countries, how to compare the countries, and to show that countries that didn't do severe lockdowns or states that didn't do severe lockdowns did not have catastrophe. And so the message in this podcast, I want to be a message of hope uh, that as we ease the lockdown, things will probably not go up in flames and we will probably not all die from coronavirus. So that's the key. But we've, we've, kind of been circling around the main message that both you and I are most interested in. You know, I think it's important for uh, all of us to critically look at what is happening in our society, but the most important message that you and I are, are, mm -hmm. are, are bent upon uh, sharing is the message that there is power in our own lives and we can affect our risk of this virus. So let's talk about that as we close this podcast. We've talked about the fact that it's elderly who are at most risk. And like we said, the media has not talked about why that may be. Certainly we know people with comorbidities are at higher risk, but do you also think that the elderly are, or maybe I should just ask you, why do you think the elderly is, are at so much risk? Yeah, okay, so no, good one. Um, there is an infirmity with age anyway, in a general sense. So I think in fairness, that's part of it. But I mentioned earlier, an insulin-sensitive, leptin-sensitive 80-year-old with reasonable muscle mass, I'd much prefer to be that person during this virus than a 58-year-old with diabetes. So that kind of puts it in context. So I interviewed Dr. Ron Rosedale, and everything he said agreed with everything I thought. I'd say you get older, you get more insulin-resistant. It's inevitable. You know, your mitochondrial function is poorer. Your immune system flags. But equally, you could get older if you did all the right stuff with a meat, fish, eggs, nutrient-dense diet, no vegetable oils, no refined carb, doing a little bit of muscle work, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be at more risk at 80. So it's still a choice, yes. It's mostly, I'd say, your metabolic health. And you don't have to be older, have a target on your back at all, but most do. And let's be honest, people get to their 60s, they get sedentary, Maybe even, I don't know, they get less careful about their health in a way because they retire, they eat the stuff they shouldn't, they think, well, you know, I'm old anyway. So there's a lot of accelerators of aging uh, that people choose to do, and then there's some where that can't be helped, I guess. Uh, so Ron talked a lot about leptin resistance, 
And it goes hand in hand with insulin, but he just described that leptin itself partakes in many parts of the immune system. It is a cytokine in itself. When you become leptin resistant, which all insulin resistant people will be, your leptin is elevated. And he described how your immune system in, in both ways, one, the parts of your immune system that should uh, be quite aggressive are not so much so. And the part that overflows the cytokine storm that actually kills people, uh, that's also completely compromised by diabetes, leptin resistance. So I think that's the big one. The interesting one recently, but it's not, it's not unrelated, are the recent studies where vitamin D status is rough and tough after correction for age and comorbidity, so after correction for age, around 10 times more likely a severe outcome or death below 20 nanogram. And I did a talk on this, I don't know if you saw it, but I made the point that you can't just take a few pills, get yourself above 30 and be the person in the low risk group because that person got there by many routes. Meat, fish, eggs, nutrient dense foods, you're going to have a higher D status no matter how much D you get because it, it's, it's a sign or a master marker of inflammatory problems. Inflammatory issues or insulin resistance issues or autoimmune issues, they're going to lower your D. So the person who's above 30 will strongly tend to be a person who has none of these problems. And then above 30 person also very likely got good healthy sun with nitric oxide and all that stuff. So it's not magic D taken from a bottle, get you above 30, you're 10 times less risk. It's the people who got there through all the good stuff, but it just shows you how powerful the good stuff is. That if you, within a week or two, you could start fasting, go on a low carb keto diet with meat, fish and eggs and no junk food, you know, take magnesium. Selenium is coming up with a massive correlation with severity outcome in a Chinese study yesterday massive correlation and selenium level in the hair. So they looked at the geographical uh, diet selenium and they also measured all the people, the victims uh, through their uh, hair sample and you got the same straight line. So if you took key vitamins and minerals um, and you did all the dietary changes, did some fasting, you know, a bit of muscle work and all that. If you did all that together within a week, I expect your risk of severe outcome, if you are going to catch it in the next three weeks, could be dropping by factors. Factors. I mean, not by 10%, maybe three times less likely to have a severe outcome within a couple of weeks. Huge. And we've been in lockdown. I'd be called a quack for saying that, but that's <laughs> what the science says. And we've been in lockdown for nine weeks. How oh. many how many thousands of lives could have been positively impacted if that was the mainstream messaging? So I the love focus. that. That's, yeah, yeah, if that was the focus. And people at the beginning, you know, I got attacked on Twitter in the beginning of this pandemic saying obesity is the issue, metabolic dysfunction is the issue. And people on Twitter said, you can't tell people to lose weight. It's not going to happen overnight. And you know what I say to them? You're wrong, you know, because yeah. you may not lose a ton of weight overnight, but in a week, in 14 days, you can significantly improve your metabolic health. And that's what you're saying. And that's what, like, if someone started exercising and changed their diet in less than two weeks, there are plenty of studies in, in the last week's podcast with Asim Hotra. I talked about one done by Robert Lustig with obese children, improvements in all markers of insulin resistance yeah. uh, with exclusion of only fructose, fructose in their diet. 
they didn't even get out the vegetable oils. Imagine what had happened if they'd gotten out the vegetable oils in addition to the fructose and, and added minerals and vitamins and did yes. everything at once. Wow, yes. what a synergistic, yeah. explosive change in your metabolic health. And you know, I met a guy in Denver there, lovely guy, a doctor of Asian extraction, quite overweight, Raj, and he came up and he thanked me. He said, I discovered your book six, seven months ago. And he said, I lost 30 something pounds. He said, I used to be very heavy and I was type two diabetic, full blown for quite some time. But he said, Ivor, you know how long it took me to become non-diabetic by glucose measures. And I said, oh, you're going to tell me like a couple of weeks, 10 days. I retested. I was right down. And then he was like 10 days. He was technically non-diabetic by blood glucose measures after years of type two diabetes. People don't realize how fast your fat may come off slowly, but your visceral fat is going to rocket down within a week or two if you do it right. And so we have a powerful tool for coronavirus yeah. already, and we could have been changing outcomes multifold many times yeah. over over the last nine weeks if this had been the, the yeah. messaging. But I just, Tragic. I don't know. It makes, it makes me sad that people on Twitter were yeah. pushing back and saying, you can't tell people to lose weight in the middle of a pandemic. That's just... To me, that's super sad. And I love that you highlight the selenium and the other minerals because that's my suspicion is that, that a lot of people who are elderly are at severe compromise from a nutritional standpoint, that they have just underlying mineral deficiencies because the diet becomes poor. It becomes lower quality because they become kind of frail and they're not willing to go to the grocery store or they get weak. It all kind of snowballs, right? They, they, they don't want to do as much. They're not as willing to cook for themselves. It's, they're in care homes where they're fed nutrient poor food full of vegetable oils. So is it any wonder that the elderly people who are living in cloistered care homes are hit hardest with this disease? That's essentially like a hospital. They're being served hospital food all the time. Is it any wonder that number one, they're kind of frail in general, and then they're being fed the worst food. In the podcast you did with Paul Mason, I just, I, I thought it was so great. You guys made this point, which I've tried to make before in the past. How ironic is it that when we go to hospitals, we are fed the things that make us all sick. I think you said it in response to one of Paul's comments. You go to a hospital and what three things are you fed with hospital food? You're fed processed carbohydrates, sugars, and refined vegetable oils. And I have a friend right now, a very good friend, mm whose father is on TPN, on Total Parenteral Nutrition. And um, you know, I sent him a copy of that podcast you did with Paul for that exact reason, because what's TPN made of? It's made of vegetable oils and it's made of simple sugars. And here we are taking the people in hospitals who are the most vulnerable and those who have cancers or can't eat for some reason and essentially mainlining in the worst foods. Is it any wonder that these people are more susceptible, but this has never been the conversation around coronavirus. This is a virus that is exposing our unhealth as a people. And so just to highlight a few of the things you said, I want to show people a paper that, that you and Paul talked about on that podcast, which I think is, it's a fairly complex paper, uh, longitudinal multi-omics of host microbe dynamics and prediabetes. Um, but if people want to dig into this paper, Basically, it shows the type of things that I've been talking about over the last few weeks, which is that when you have diabetes, when you have prediabetes, when you are insulin resistant, there is a significant impairment in immune function. Um, some of the graphics are a little bit, uh, require a little bit to interpret, but you can see in this graphic here that many of the uh, immunologic uh, responses, T helper 2 pathway, 
uh, IL-8, uh, T helper one pathway, acute phase response, insulin receptor signaling. They are very different between those who are uh, not having diabetes, who are insulin sensitive, and those who are pre-diabetic. And so it's just a paper that is really laying out at a molecular level the differences between those who are insulin sensitive here in the green column and those who are insulin resistant. And you can see that there is clear difference in the way that the immune system is responding. And as Paul eloquently points out in the podcast that you guys did, there are clear differences in the way that the innate immune system responds to the infection. And this is relevant because of what we're seeing in these infections, namely the cytokine storm, which can be connected with innate immune system uh, yeah, sort of problems with innate immune system signaling. And that can happen in diabetes and prediabetes as well. I uh, just want to mm. share a few, more, a few more studies. Glycation interferes with natural killer cell function. Huh, could this be a problem? <laughs> I'd say that's probably not <laughs> a good, say. that's not a good thing. Not a good thing. And then the last one I want to share is this one, which is perhaps the saddest one of all of them. It's a 2020, uh, 2020 article uh, April the 10th, estimation of effects of nationwide lockdown for containing coronavirus infection on worsening glycosylated hemoglobin and increase in diabetes-related complications. It's a simulation model using multivariate regression analysis, but the conclusion from this author is that the, directly, the duration of lockdown is directly proportional to the worsening of glycemic control and diabetes-related complications. This is a big problem. Yeah, According to this huge. model, such an increase in diabetes-related complications will put additional load on the overburdened healthcare system and also increase COVID-19 infections in patients with uncontrolled glycemia. So what we're saying, and if this model is correct, what this researcher is modeling is that a lockdown is going to worsen insulin resistance. And that's a variety of reasons people are less, uh, just in terms of what we're seeing, uh, you know, people are less active, they're eating more junk food. This yeah. is a nightmare. This is a complete catastrophe of public health. And, and when I, again, not to sound like a broken record, but when I tweeted about this and I said, isn't it possible that a lockdown could have negative consequences on the health of our population and more, make them more susceptible to coronavirus? I had people pushing back at me on Twitter and saying, you're an idiot. That's irresponsible of a physician to say. And what are we seeing now? There's good evidence that that is in fact the case and that by putting humans in cages, we are becoming less healthy individuals. As you said, the vitamin D data is very, very clear. Um, it's, it's, it's very clear um, that the vitamin D stuff is, is mm. playing a huge role. Um, this is a paper that I've shared previously Vitamin D insufficiency is prevalent in severe COVID-19. And, um, and you shared in one of your other uh, YouTube videos that there's data now with vitamin D in India, Indonesia, the USA, and the Philippines that show pretty much the exact same thing, which is that there's about a 10x risk of severe COVID-19 with a vitamin D level less yeah. than 30 uh, nanograms per ml. So striking. And, and you should be over 40. I mean, uh, just for people to, I won't open those slides, but I will, I just have a slide I will open, but I won't open the vitamin D pack, but I showed the Maasai. They have been tested at 45 and 50 for women. Nanogram is normal evolutionary. Their genetic cousins, 
pretty much the same who go City. They drop to 25, 26, under 30. And it's, you know, it's diet, it's lifestyle, it's city life. And this is the difference. And I also had athletes in Wyoming, a study done, men 45, women 50. So natural living humans out in the air and the sun like they should be and eating well, 45 for men, 50 for women is nominal. And Professor Hollick, who discovered D originally, he pointed out once in a, a paper, and I could never find it afterwards, but it was a mechanistic paper. And they did an experiment and they increased D. And they saw that when your D gets up around mid 40s, your body starts, the reaction levels off. So it's actually got a further proof point that that's where your body actually levels off and doesn't really try and make it go up on average. I know people can shove it up higher, but on average. So all the points say 45 is a nominal ancestral D. And what do we see? Down to 30, you're still doing fantastic. But under 30 and under 20, you're in the toilet. Uh, this is just, no one's talking about this, Paul. I've been looking at all the media the last four to six weeks. Almost nothing on D, nothing on selenium. A little bit about obesity, kind of naming and shaming, and then moving on quickly. There's no coverage. It's insane. And I love I, that you said there about ancestral levels of vitamin D, and I'd love to see the slide that you were going to share there. because, I, and, and I love that you highlighted earlier that, that getting to 40 by taking a vitamin D supplement is mm. probably not the same thing as being in real sunlight. And I've said this over and over in my <laughs> messaging as well, because of endorphins, because of nitric oxide in the skin. The listener can refer back to the podcast that I did with Malcolm Kendrick, <laughs> We talked about the importance of nitric oxide and endothelial function. Well, sun on your skin makes nitric oxide. Next week, I'll do a podcast with Mark Bell in which I'll go into the vitamin D stuff in much more detail. Oh, yeah. I'll just show briefly, seeing as it's here. There are the studies, and we showed the risk. Yeah, there's the uncorrected 20 times risk corrected for age, sex, and comorbidity, which is quite unfair to correct for comorbidity because it's... Uh, kind of collinear, it's connected. But anyway, 10x. And then just the guys, oh, I go through that. That's the causes. Where did I show? Yeah, I just showed human. Here's the Maasai. So there's the figures. There's the Bantu down at 25 and Maasai up at 42 median. And then you've got the athletes in uh, Wyoming. Yeah, Laramie, males, women. And I mean, this is just the normal healthy level in like 30 is probably okay, but not below 30. And the only last thing I'll just show is one last thing. Ah, this one's kind of fun. Oh yeah, Italy. I, was, I didn't know Italy was profoundly deficient. Look at that. One of the worst D deficiency rates in Europe. And they're all scratching their heads wondering why Italy is bad. Women 60 to 80, lower than five nanogram in 27 percent of the women this is 60 to 80 in the community five five and lower than 12 in as many as 76 percent of the women these are basement levels right and then hypovitaminosis d is below 12 32 percent of healthy postmenopausal women below 12 82 percent in people in care homes below 12 i mean like you know, and then Japan, they noted, which is doing very well, they actually are doing great in vitamin D. So look, correlation isn't everything, but, you know, this stuff, uh, here's COVID impact. And of course, the massive impact is in the northern latitudes who've just come out of winter. 
And the reality is that Australia has just come out of a long, hot summer. So, of course, they're not going to have as much with a corona if it's anything like the previous corona. You know, what else was there? Here was Brazil in SARS-1 in 2009. There was a 30 times severity increase for death rate, 20 to 30 times being down here in this lower UV latitude. Now, look, there's differences here with city density, diet, but like you see this relationship all the time. I don't know. It's crazy, isn't it? No one's talking about this, even looking at it. No one cares. No one cares. No one's talking about it. And in California, all of the parks are closed and they close beaches for days. So not to say, I mean, you can still go out of your house, but in a lot of places in the world, you were not allowed to be out of your house without a pass to go to the grocery store. And so we were being limited from going outside and getting actual sunlight. In California, every single hiking trail is closed right now. I tried to go hiking the other day. I couldn't even go hiking. You can't go outside. All of the things that people usually do to get vitamin D are taken away from us in California. The beach has just reopened in San Diego, uh, thankfully, but we are being told to avoid the things that could be most helpful and the junk food manufacturers are having a heyday. Yeah, they, they've, got a, they've got a fire hose of pure poison like piped into every house where people are sitting cowering under their beds. Anyway, that was an image that just popped out of my head. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. junk food we'll, we... sales are up, cereal sales are up, alcohol sales are up. It's just, mm. it's so, it's, I don't know. Well, anyway. That last one is probably mostly just me. I'm causing a bump <laughs> in the curve. <laughs> It's yeah, so well, crazy. It's, it's a serious topic, but we need to keep a sense of humor too. But we might circle back because in a couple of weeks, you know, in the next week or two, these curves are moving. Now, maybe they're going to pop up again or something as they pull out. But, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll really see if everything we said finally comes true, like everything else we said before. We'll see. And then, we'll see. you know, we will definitely have to circle back. I'd love to have you back on. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this time. I, I know you're super busy. I've so appreciated all of your analysis and your engineering mindset for all of this. I want to um, I want to make sure to share some other stuff that you've got going on. What do you want to tell people about Ivor? Where can people find more of your stuff, and well, what should they be looking at? Well, actually, yeah, I just say if you uh, Google Ivor Cummins anyway, that you get my YouTube. Oh, if you could share that, that'd be cool. What you just shared. Uh, yeah, so this is the key thing at the moment. Uh, David Bobbitt and IHDA, our sponsor, helped us make a movie. We scan 45 middle-aged men who are sporting heroes. And you can see the cardiology quote there. We had three cardiologists. They were all healthy in their 50s, no issues. But we discovered nine with really high disease. Several have since had to have operations. And one had an event. So the calcium scan is crucial, but the key thing in this movie is the latter half of it, we followed the hero's journey, a high scoring guy who's no BS. And he said, how do I take this on and stop my progression and, and, and fix this? And he did a lot of what you and I would completely agree with. And he, he got an amazing result at the end of the year when we scanned him again. So extratimemovie.com. And it really helped us if people share it as well as downloading and watching it, you know. It's me and Donal O'Neill and, and the guys and William Wheatbelly Davis is in there as well. And, uh, but, but if you could share it and recommend it, you know, it'll help us uh, support the mission. 
And the mission is, is one that's very important. And it's this idea mm. of calcium scoring and knowing what the burden of atherosclerosis is in your arteries with a simple scan. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I want to check it out. I heard you talking about it on YouTube a couple of times, but my impression is that it's about these sports heroes who didn't even know that they had a massive coronary artery burden. And Hey, if you discover it, then you can make changes. I think we people should make changes in general, but we know that human behavior is powerfully motivated by something like this. So I'm, I'm so glad that you guys did this. And thank you for all this work you've been doing, Ivor. You've got a book too that is excellent. Where can people find, you've got a YouTube channel. Where can people find more of your other stuff too? Oh yeah, well, if you Google Ivor Cummins, just my name, I mean, the YouTube will pop up on the first page on the fatemperor.com uh, website. Uh, but also Eat Rich, Live Long is the book. And it's in Amazon. It's out a year and a half now. So we're, we're averaging still five-star reviews, solid, um, nearly all five-star. And I think we put a lot into it. So science, ton of recipes from a great chef. And the first half goes through an easy level. The middle is all the plans and recipes and everything. And then the third part is the science, little heavier, but we put a lot of work into making it understandable. And then the appendices at the back of the hardcore. You don't have mm -hmm. to go there, but there's 300 scientific references in the back as well. It fills quite a bit. It's the real I love deal, the appendices. I, I love the appendices. <laughs> you sent me a copy and I just spent all my time in the appendices. It was great. So <laughs> I, can, I can heartily endorse the book. It's very worth your time and money and supporting Ivor stuff. It's a very, very well-written book. So last question, you know it, man. What's the most radical thing you've done recently in the middle of the oh, lockdown? Uh, let... I let the world know what coronavirus was really about. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> hey, there could be a similarity with the most radical thing you've been doing lately. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, the most radical thing I did recently was I got to go to Houston and I, I got to hang out with some friends there and I'm moving to Texas real soon. But huh? uh, I, 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 I do think that this is an important conversation. Isn't it interesting that that you and I have similar paths, right? That, that when we're talking about cholesterol and heart disease and cardiovascular risk, we're just not really satisfied with the mainstream narrative. And how fascinating is it that coronavirus happens and we both say, wait, this mainstream narrative is still wrong. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of animal-based diets and carnivore diets, as you know. And I was you know, busy sort of bucking the norm there and bucking the status quo and writing my book, The Carnivore Code. And then coronavirus happens and I'm right back in the middle of the thick of it going, I don't agree with this paradigm either. And you think, wow, like maybe it's just all one in the same paradigm or one in the same way of thinking. And I think in a lot of ways it is, but, but I do think it is, it is fascinating that, um, that a lot of the people that I respected uh, that I found to be the most insightful in terms of dietary and overall health conversations and coronavirus conversations, you and uh, Paul Mason and others, are smack dab in the middle of, of the coronavirus conversation as well. So thanks for sharing this yeah. time with me, my brother. Absolutely, Paul. And you know, that's what leadership is about. And a lot of my pals who are equally minded were a bit scared to talk about it because they saw the, the kind of hysteria and, and they were a little afraid. And, and a lot of people have told me, they loads of messaging, more than most other topics, saying thank you so much for for standing up and just saying it and sharing it and bringing some calmness to this. But you know, I'd also say one last thing to the Americans particularly. So a lot of people from America attacked me and there's this kind of thing, oh, people are going to, you're going to kill people with this advice. We need to lock down forever. Um, 
But just remember to those guys, when you're talking about locking people up, especially when the data says it's not really necessary and we could do it much smarter, but you want to lock people up and have the government come in and lock you up, uh, that kind of sounds like communism to me. It does, doesn't it? It's so It's very reminiscent to communism. But there you oh. go. Maybe it's just an association. Oh, my goodness. It's so, so anyway. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well... Thank you so much for, for all of your work on this. I've appreciated it greatly. And I think that hopefully we are all moving through this in, in the right way. And we are all beginning to understand uh, where the reality of all this is. And again, it's like that tweet I had from many, many weeks ago, the coronavirus conversation has been all wrong. Not to say that social distancing is the wrong conversation, not to say that we shouldn't oh, have overwhelmed the hospitals, but let's keep shifting the conversation away from fear and hysteria and toward, you know, the things that we can do because that's, that's the only way that we're going to move things forward in the long term, And that's the only way that us as humans are going to increase the health of our population. And that can't be lost in this. I fear it will be, but we're going to do our best to prevent that. Yeah. We got to go on as a species and we, we can't do everything we're going to need to do in the coming decades from under the bed. So yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Thank you, Ivor. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen and go to extratimemovie.com to see our fascinating new documentary on stopping and reversing heart disease.